we shall try and explore our way through a little bit more of Craig's material and interacting uh, critically with it. Um, this uh, faith and knowledge is a key apologetic issue. Uh, we're relating particularly to the uh, first chapter of Craig's book, How Do I Know Christianity is True? Uh, and I think actually that first chapter is both one of the harder bits of the book um, in um, theory of knowledge, what philosophers call epistemology, just our long word for how we know stuff, um, and perhaps one of the more controversial bits of the book as well, because Craig's views in this area um, are more controversial than his uh, views on some of the other topics. Uh, even amongst uh, fellow Christian thinkers. So I'm going to critically interact with this and uh, encourage you to do so as well. Um, Start off with looking at... uh, We were having a chat over lunch in the park about the importance of um, the understanding of faith and of uh, when particularly critics of Christianity... um, try and criticise Christianity on the basis of putting forward some sort of standard of what it is to be rational that they say Christianity falls short of. They also attack Christianity by giving a certain understanding of what it means to have faith, which isn't really the biblical understanding of it, or of putting forward some standard of what it means to be rational, which actually, when you examine it, isn't a very rational standard of rationality Um, and there are generally two ways of responding to that kind of criticism in the past uh, opponents of Christianity have often said things like um, "You know, the only way to really be rational and to know stuff is by using the scientific method or by um, arguing from first principles using deductive logic Um, uh, Christianity shouldn't be believed because it doesn't meet that standard And on the one hand, Christian apologists and philosophers have responded by trying to argue that actually, yes, Christianity does meet that standard. You can argue for Christianity using evidential apologetics or by using the kind of um, knockdown deductive proof that uh, medieval philosophers like uh, Anselm and Aquinas tried to use. Uh, That, of course, still continues, but on the other hand, uh, a more modern movement uh, in philosophy... Uh, looking at how we know stuff and so on has fed into apologetics in terms of people saying let's be very careful about those standards that people are trying to hold Christianity to and saying that actually maybe we can criticise some of the standards of rationality that people bring forward in their critiques and show using reason that those standards of rationality they're basing their criticism on aren't in fact good standards of rationality Uh, and that when you have a better understanding of what it is to be rational, you will see that Christianity easily meets the proper requirements of of being rational. So you see that that difference between responding by saying, I can meet your standard, and the response of saying, I'm not sure that your standard is really the right one, is really true. Let's talk about that. So uh, I've got a quotes for some of the new atheist writers here talking about how they try and portray faith. Victor Stenger says, Faith 
is belief in the absence of supportive evidence, even in the light of contrary evidence. Uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Um, Anthony Grayling, A.C. Grayling, a British philosopher, says faith is a commitment to believe contrary to evidence and reason. Now if that's what these guys think faith is, it's hardly surprising to me that they are against faith. Uh, Because if that's what faith was, I think I'd be against it as well myself. Um, I, uh, I think this is quite a useful comeback analysis of what do we mean when we talk about faith. Um, and philosophers can distinguish between um, what we call a belief that and a belief in. I believe that the rope bridge over the gorge is soundly constructed. And I, uh, I might say, yes, I believe that it, that is true as an intellectual belief, but if you start pushing me towards the bridge, uh, if I start pushing back at you and backtracking, I'm showing that I don't really have any faith in the bridge. I, I don't have any belief in the soundness of that uh, bridge, really. I'm not really exercising trust in what I believe to be true. And I think... A really good modern English translation of the term faith would really be the term trust. That's much more, I think, what the, particularly the New Testament means when it talks about faith in Christ and so on. It's talking about trust, trusting someone, um, trusting that they are telling you the truth, that they really are who they say, claim, claim to be, and so on, really can fulfill the promises that he promises to us, uh, trusting uh, a person. Um, but when we have this combination of an intellectual belief that something is, is true, that something is the case, and we combine it with a commitment, an act of trust or belief in, then we have an example of faith. So not only do I believe that Christ uh, offers eternal life and he can really fulfill that promise, but I actually trust myself to him for eternal life and so on. But you can see there that the, the act of commitment or believing in someone or something can, is obviously combined with, can be based upon an intellectual belief that something is the case. And the intellectual belief that something is the case could, of course, be something that is supported by reason and evidence and so on. It's not a choice between um, believing something on reason and evidence or having faith. Uh, to have faith can involve believing something on the basis of reason and evidence, although it is more than a merely intellectual commitment. It's also a, a personal sort of trusting commitment. Is it saying rely on? Rely, yes, if you rely on something. So, I mean, classic example, uh, I, I, yes, do you believe that the, tra- the chair will support your weight? Yes, I do. Uh, go and prove it then I sit down on the chair I'm now relying on the chair to support my weight Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talked about faith um, and he said it's not an opposition between um, faith and and reason but between faith and um, emotion say he said I might um, I'm on the operating table 
I might believe intellectually that um, the anaesthesia will put me to sleep, will put me under so I don't feel any pain in the operation. But as that doesn't necessarily mean that as the, the anaesthetist mask approaches my, fe- my face, I might, might not have fear. I might be worried that it won't work. And I, I become all doubtful and kind of, oh, I don't, know, I don't really want this to happen. Even though at an intellectual level, yes, I know that anaesthesia works, but when it actually comes to a situation where I actually have to rely upon that being true, uh, I might be fearful and worried, even though I believe intellectually that, of course, anaesthesia works. Um, and so he says, it's like that with faith. It, the art of faith, he said, is the, the art of continuing to believe something that your intellect has decided is true, despite the opposition of changing moods, or uh, fear, or, um, and so on. Um, the film that I linked to at the, the end of this lesson is a still from it. They might have seen the film Contact. It's a number of years old now. Star Jodie Foster. It's based on a book called Contact by an atheist astronomer called Carl Sagan. And it's about a first contact situation between humanity and aliens who send this message to humans and in the film uh, the message contains a set of instructions for building a really complicated machine and humans don't really know what this machine is going to do but they decide they'll build the machine because they've received this message from outer space and they build the machine and it's clearly kind of got a seat and a pod and they stick Jodie Foster uh, as an astronomer in this pod and the machine starts up and it sort of sends her on a, on a journey into another dimension to meet the aliens and uh, She's got recording equipment and she's a scientist and um, it's a very interesting bit in the film where she goes on this journey and she's, we kind of just see her reaction to what she's seeing rather than seeing what she's seeing. She's a wonderful bit of acting and she says, oh, they should have, you know, why did they send a scientist? They should have sent a poet to be able to capture the reality of what I'm seeing. You can't just uh, whittle it down to a series of, of scientific observations and measurements this experience that I'm having. She meets the aliens, she comes back, and she discovers that, um, like, a second has passed. And everybody thinks the machine broke and failed and it didn't do anything. Although she's had an experience, it's a bit like when Lucy goes into Narnia through the wardrobe for the first time, in the, the line that which in the wardrobe, and then comes back and says, I've been to this magical kingdom, and they say, no, you haven't, you've you know, really been playing hide-and-seek for ten minutes, and you couldn't possibly have, have done that. And they have this uh, committee hearing um, uh, which she's quizzed because she's saying this happened and nobody believes her really. And uh, one of the members of the panel uh, says, Dr. Arroway, you, you come to us with no evidence, no record, no artifacts, only a story that, to, to put it mildly, strains credulity. Over half a trillion dollars was spent, dozens of lives were lost. Are you really going to sit there and tell us that we should just take this all on faith um, and the film very much plays around with notions of well, what, is it, what does it mean to have faith what does it mean to have evidence for something um, actually it's revealed later on that, that something did record on the, the tape of her video recorder uh, there's a, a long uh, period of recording 
although I think it's static in the film, but there's a long period of something that couldn't, you know, how could a long recording of nothing have happened in only the second that it took this machine to apparently fail, kind of thing. So there is some, some evidence, but she doesn't know about that because the government have hid it. Um, and there's a, an interplay between her character as a, a scientist uh, and another character in the film who's a sort of new agey kind of spiritual man and discussions uh, about faith and religion and science and so on. It's very interesting from that kind of point of view. Um, but here, taking it on faith, what, what do they mean here? Some people like those new atheists would just see faith as it's something that's contrary to evidence and reason, or at least doesn't have anything in, it, in its support. Does that necessarily mean it's just a subjective thing? The fact that she had that experience, she knows she experienced what she went through. Even if she can't uh, prove it to other people who didn't have the same experience, but doesn't her testimony count as a form of evidence in and of its, itself? Um, does evidence have to be something um, sort of independent of the person that we can all point to and kind of look at? Or can our own experiences be part of what we mean by evidence and so on? Different people kind of start drawing these lines in diff different places. Uh, it's often very crucial to say, well, what do you mean by evidence? Do, would you include personal experience? Or do you only mean the sort of thing that we can all independently agree on and all measure and have access to? Or do, do we mean something that maybe you have to trust my testimony about? In that sense, having faith is a way of accessing evidence, if you use the language in that way. And what do we mean by faith? What do we mean by evidence? And so on. Raises all sorts of issues, that film. We could put it this way. When we ask, is belief in God, say, reasonable, we could mean different things by that. Is having good arguments, say, or evidence for God or for Christianity what we could call a necessary condition, something you have to have for a rational faith, a rational belief. Is it a necessary condition? Or we could also mean, is having good arguments for God or for Christianity a sufficient condition? Is it enough for rational belief? Um, is it both? Is it one? Is it the other? Personally, I think it's not a necessary condition for rational belief and we'll see some of the reasons why think about personal experience and testimony even though we haven't got sort of independently accessible evidence that we, you could use to prove it to other people but our belief could be rational on the basis of our experience but certainly having good arguments is a, is a sufficient condition if you had good reasons to believe it then that would make believing it reasonable but maybe there are situations where it can be reasonable to believe something even though you don't have evidence under a certain understanding of what we would count as, as evidence. And so some of this depends upon how we define the, the terminology, how we're cutting up the, the landscape. Uh, and it's quite often very crucial in these kind of discussions to make sure that the, the person we're discussing with, we're using the same definitions we're even at the level of we're taking it, you know, let me tell you about the Christian faith. If they hear, let me tell you about why you should believe something against all the evidence, they're not going to be very receptive to that if that's what they hear you saying. You need to clarify what we mean by having faith. Um, that in itself can be quite a barrier 
especially when people like the New Atheists and so on are going around giving out a sort of uh, misinterpretation of what it means to have faith. Um, Craig, in his chapter, starts looking at this question, is a, an evidential foundation for faith necessary, without which faith would be unjustified and irrational? And you could term, I think, his answer to that question as a very hard line, no. A very uh, no on one extreme of that spectrum. He does make a very interesting distinction, philosophers love distinctions, uh, between knowing that Christianity is true and showing to other people that Christianity is true. Um, This links back to that uh, Jodie Foster example. Uh, He says, I think that fundamentally the way we know Christianity to be true is by what he calls the self-authenticating witness of God's Holy Spirit that there's a sort of spiritual mechanism, a a relational experience that we have by which we know that Christianity is true. So the role of argument and evidence for him lies mainly in showing that Christianity is true. For him, those kind of things are mainly for the benefit of other people who don't have that experience of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's a very interesting distinction. It's also crucial here if we just very briefly mention um, the debate about what is knowledge. The standard kind of definition that you would get of knowledge is that it is a justified true belief. You can't know something if it isn't true, obviously. And you can't know something if you don't actually believe it. If you don't believe it, it's true, then you don't know that it's true there's a widespread agreement on that. There's more disagreement when it comes to the, the justified, the sort of having some sort of reason or some sort of evidence or uh, some sort of particular way in which you've arrived at that belief which happens to be true. What's the connection between the reality and you that has to be there in order for your belief that's true to count as knowledge? And there's a, a widespread disagreement among philosophers about what that extra something has to be indeed there's even a disagreement over whether there has to be an extra something Um, there are some philosophers uh, and I think I always put myself in this camp as well actually who think that true belief is knowledge and that discussions about ways of coming to have that knowledge or justify that knowledge is a separate topic Really, whereas most philosophers, I would acknowledge, put these two topics together and they think, yeah, of course your beliefs have to be true, you have to believe it, but there's got to be something else in order to make a true belief knowledge, although we all disagree over what that something else is. Um, It's easier when you're talking about particular subject areas, you know, what is it to know something historically, what is it to know something scientifically? And, and so on than it is to look at the general discussion about well abstract from all of these particular situations what is knowledge per se as such um, so there's an interesting sort of debate rumbling on in the, in the background there uh, Craig particularly looks at historical background his chapters tend to go from sort of introduction a historical background looking at the modern day where that discussion's got to on the topic his view on the subject and then something about practical 
application. This is Craig describing the views of John Locke, an English philosopher, uh, empiricist philosopher. Uh, John Locke insisted that revealed truths cannot contradict reason. What's true can't contradict what's true. Truths all fit together. Uh, God can reveal to us both truths attainable by reason as well as truths unattainable by reason. There are some things that we can work out for ourselves and come to know. There are other things that are true that we can't work out for ourselves um, without help from God revealing it. But if God reveals it to us, we can know. That's what he's saying. Uh, The revealed truths that are unattainable by reason cannot contradict reason. Something that uh, claims to be a revelation from God and to be true can't actually contradict something else that we know to be true. If the two things appear to contradict each other, that would either mean that Christianity is false or that we've misunderstood one or other of these two truths or misunderstood how they really fit together. So therefore no proposition contrary to reason can be accepted as divine revelation. As long as it's actually contradictory, whether we think or not, those are two different things, of course. Thus, although we know that a revelation from God must be true, according to Locke, it still lies within the scope of reason to determine if a supposed revelation really is from God, and to determine its meaning. Um, the, sort of the, the sort of statements of, you know, the Bible says that I believe it, that finishes it, begs a lot of questions. It, does the Bible really say that? Have you understood it correctly? Why should you believe it just because it's in the Bible? Do you have to have reasons for that or not? Um, must you at least be able to show that what you think the Bible claims to be true doesn't actually contradict something else which you know to be true with an equal amount of certainty or a greater amount of certainty and so on? More than that, uh, Still describing Locke's very influential views on this, Craig goes on, he says, Revelation must not only be in harmony with reason, but must itself be guaranteed by appropriate rational proofs. And it's this bit at the end here that is the thing most under question uh, from Craig and in the contemporary discussion about how we know stuff. Um, the idea that you can only know things if you've got some sort of reason for it or evidence for it. It's a view in epistemology called foundationalism, um, that everything must be appropriately justified in some way in order for us to know it. But there are problems with that view. Um, Obviously, if we ask, in the process of thinking about something, arguing about something, can you argue backwards in that kind of chain of reasoning forever? Uh, well, no, you obviously can't. If your standard of rationality is it's unreasonable to believe something unless you've got a rational proof of it or some evidence in its favour, let me try and prove something to you. I can try and prove A to you and I give you a set of reasons or evidence, B. You say, that's wonderful, Pete. Thank you for giving me B in support of A. But of course, I shouldn't believe anything unless I've got a good reason and evidence in its favour. So what good reason and evidence are you going to give me for the, the truth and the reliability of B and, and for the fact that B really does support A? Well, I'll, I'll give you C. 
which supports B in support of A. You say, wonderful, that's great. But of course, it would be irrational of me to believe anything unless I had a good reason and an argument and some evidence in its favor. So now let me give you D and E and F. I'm going to run out of letters. I'm just going to keep on. There's no end to that process of having to justify everything. Um, you can put it this way. Ultimately speaking, all arguments have to start from somewhere that's simply argued from without being argued to. You can't argue to everything because there's nothing, nowhere outside of everything to do arguing from. It's a sort of um, theory of knowledge version of the cosmo one version of the cosmological argument. And you see the, the similarity. If, if some things are caused by other things, can it be the case that everything is caused by something outside of itself? Well, that would lead to an infinite regress. Surely that couldn't be the case. Therefore, there must be a, a first uncaused cause of things that exist. Something that does causing without itself having to have been caused. Well, isn't it like that in rationality? Can't, shouldn't there have to be some things that we can know without having to have argued for them, evidenced for them? Because... If we say otherwise and we say, no, our standard is you must argue for everything, then you end up not being able to argue for anything. This relates very much to um, what Oxford philosopher Richard Swinburne tools, talks about the principle of credulity and of testimony again. Um, he says it's a basic principle of knowledge called the principle of credulity. That, and here it is in the italics we, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until we have evidence that we're mistaken and so it's crucial that you put it that way around because if you, did the, if you didn't follow that rule you'd be following the opposite you'd be saying something like um, we never ought to believe that things are the way they seem to be until we've got evidence that they really are that way, evidence that we're not mistaken. But then, of course, we, if we're, we're sceptical about things being the way they seem to be until we've got good reason to think that we're not mistaken, we'd be sceptical about any evidence given to us that tried to show that we weren't mistaken. And we'd be sceptical about any evidence given in support of that evidence, and so on. We'd be back into this infinite regress where we could never have any confidence in any uh, apparent reality. It would be, uh, and actually, Swimmer says that we have to do the opposite to be, in order to be rational. Um, you've probably seen the film The Matrix, where Keanu Reeves is, thinks he's in reality. But it's not really reality, it's all a, an illusion foisted on him uh, by a computer that's generating in his mind the appearance of 20th century reality when actually he's stuck in a pod in the 26th century or whatever. Um, now, it, it's, it's logically possible that that kind of scenario is true. Maybe none of us are actually in this room. We just... It just appears to us that we're in this room. It could all be an illusion foisted on us by a computer or by um, René Descartes' evil demon that's taking delight in 
deluding everybody about everything that it can. Um, well, for Descartes, he said, there, and therefore, the only way that we can be sure about what we know, the only way to be rational, is to find something that we couldn't be deluded about, and to very carefully build our knowledge from there. Hence, you get the, well, even if everything that I think is real is a delusion, and I haven't even really got a body, uh, at least I know that I exist. I think, therefore, I am. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't be deluded about that, because I'd, I'd have to exist even to be deluded about something. And then I try and very carefully build my worldview from there, a very foundation up kind of view. More modern epistemologists like Swinburne would say, hang on a minute, that's, that's you know, kind of going overboard here. Why don't we just say, yeah, sure, we could all be in the matrix, but it doesn't look like we are. And aren't we completely rational to all believe that we really are all in this room together? doesn't just seem obvious that that's the rational thing to think and that the person who's trying to convince us that we're not really in this room they're the person who bears the burden of proof it's up to the sceptic to prove that things aren't the way they seem to be it's not up to us to prove that they are the way they seem to be because if it were we would not be rational in believing huge amounts of stuff that just seems obviously rational to believe like we're all in this room at the moment. So the burden of proof is on the sceptic of the experience rather than on the one who says that things are the way that they appear to be. Yeah? Uh, I like to think of it as the if it looks like a duck principle. If it looks like a duck and it's waddling like a duck and it's swimming like a duck and pecking at bread on the water like a duck, it's probably a duck. And the person who comes up to me and says, Pete, I know it looks like a duck, but actually... It's not a duck. It's all a conspiracy. It's not really a duck. It's a fake. Well, if they did something like pulled out a remote control unit, piloted the duck over to us, picked it out of the water, unscrewed the back plate of the duck, showed me the electronic animatronic workings of their robotic duck, then, on the basis of that new experience, which I'd have to trust was a genuine experience, I'd say, ah, oh, I was mistaken, I was deluded. It's not a real duck, it's a fake. But it's up to them to do something like that to convince me that it's not a real duck. Given that I have an experience of what for the world looks like a duck. So I could be convinced that I'm wrong, but I start out believing that I'm right. Here's a little uh, video clip. Hopefully we've got the, the noise up enough. Uh, also a friend of mine talking about the burden of proof uh, and a little bit of a um, food-related example.
So there's now in philosophy a whole level of discussion, separate from things like arguments for the existence of God, there's a whole debate about, do you even need arguments for the existence of God? Or at the very least, um, in order to rationally believe in God, do you have to have some sort of argument for the existence of God? Or is it enough to say, for example, it seems to me that there's a God, it just seems obvious. Or I've had an experience of God in my life, and it's rational for me to trust that experience until someone does something to disprove it. And that's very much the line that Craig takes, and he terms it in the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, something the New Testament does talk about. Um, and he says that if you have that experience on the basis of that experience, it's rational for you to believe in God, to believe in the basics of Christian theology and so on, believe in Christ, even if you don't have any good rational proofs or evidential arguments in favour of those things, so long as you um, have that experience and, um, as we'll see, it overwhelms any argument brought against it. And this is where it gets a little bit more controversial. So Craig's response to John Locke and this tradition of thinking about revelation and rationality is that it's primarily is mainly to reject the claim that rational proofs provide the essential foundation of religious beliefs. Of course, he believes that there are good rational proofs, it's just that he doesn't think we need them. Uh, this is a response particularly influenced by an American philosopher who's one of the top, uh, if not the top philosopher of religion in the world at the moment, just recently retired, uh, called Alvin Plantinga, who's done a lot of, of work in the field that's shaped, very much shaped the discussion in the whole area uh, for secular philosophy as well as Christian philosophy. And Plantinga, as Craig describes it, maintains that belief in God, the central doctrines of Christianity, is rational and warranted. That's Plantinga's term for the thing that you add to true belief to make it knowledge, if you think there is such a thing. And rational and warranted, wholly apart from any evidential foundations. So back to this is kind of Craig summarising uh, Plantinga. He's saying Plantinga argues that in some cases, uh, the original belief itself might be so, so exceed its alleged defeater. That is, um, if you have this belief on the basis of your experience, uh, what Christians might describe as the testimony of the Holy Spirit, someone then comes with an objection to Christianity. The question here is, um, in order for me to continue being rational, do I have to um, have some sort of objection, rational objection, to the objection? Do I have to be able to dismantle the non-Christian objection and show why it doesn't work? Or, and here's what Craig argues, maybe it could be that the, the power of this internal experience, witness of the Holy Spirit, is so strong that in and of itself it, it could overwhelm an objection brought against Christianity. I might say, well, I don't know what's wrong with that objection, but it sure isn't strong enough to convince me that Christianity is not true because I've got such a strong experience of Christ in my life and it just seems so obvious to me. It would be like someone giving an argument that um, we were all in the matrix, not really in this room, and we might say, yeah, that's a very interesting argument that you've given there. I, I, I don't really know what's wrong with it, necessarily, but good goodness me, I mean, that's 
surely it's just obvious that we're all in this room. There must be something wrong with the argument. It's just, there's no way that your argument is strong enough to convince me that we're all in the matrix, given the strength of my experience. And Craig might say a parallel uh, thing can go on in terms of Christian experience and objections to Christianity. Um, example of uh, someone who's accused of a crime uh, against whom all of the evidence that's presented in court uh, points to them having done the crime and, but he says in that uh, even though the person themselves know that they're innocent so you know that you didn't commit the, the crime he says you know you, you remember the last week and do, doing this crime sure doesn't figure in your memory of it okay well you remember being somewhere else but you can't prove that to anyone else. You're like uh, Dr. Arroway in contact. You've had the experience, but you can't prove it to other people because all you've got is your experience. And they're giving arguments and evidence that's that presented in court that all points to you being guilty. Does that necessarily mean that in order to be rational, you have to, you have to say, oh, well, I must have done it then? So Craig says, well, not necessarily. Um, the strength of your personal knowledge that you didn't do the crime could very well outweigh the strength of the evidence that's presented in court for you being guilty of it. Yeah? Um, Plantinga says makes the theological application suggesting belief in God might similarly intrinsically defeat all the defeaters that might be brought against it. Um, it talks about John Calvin and, and so on. Now I think the thing to grasp here is that there's a bit of a transition between this kind of stuff that Alvin Plantinga said in that interview, the kind of things that he argues in books of his like and warranted Christian belief, and the way that Craig then develops it. Uh, in Craig's hands, all of the, the kind of qualifications that Plantinga puts on his work when he says, well, it might do this. It, it, it could be the case that Christian experience would be so strong that it, that it overwhelms any defeat it brought against it and so on. That's something to think about. Uh, for Craig, I think it becomes a certainly does. That's why I, I put Craig as a very sort of hard line um, adoption of, of this view. Um, despite the fact that, as Craig says, Plantinga emphasises that the, the, the proper basicality, that means the rationality of believing something without evidence is just a, a basic belief that's nonetheless rational for you to have. The proper basicality of the belief that God exists is defeasible, it is something that could be defeated uh, by incompatible beliefs. So Plantinga seems to say uh, it, this experience makes belief in God rational, at least until someone brings an objection against it. And it might be so strong that it overwhelms a lot of objections against it. But at least there's a theoretical possibility that maybe the evidence brought against it could be so strong that it did overwhelm the rationality of Christian belief. Plantinga seems to leave that as a possibility. Whereas Craig doesn't leave that as a possibility. Um, a quote here from another Christian philosopher, Paul Feinberg, talking about that uh, court case example. Um, someone accused of a crime that they honestly believe they didn't commit, but doesn't it seem possible that there might come a time when one would need some reasons beyond your sense of, of innocence based on your memory or whatever for continuing rationally to deny that he committed the crime. Maybe so much evidence gets presented in court that you might actually 
have to, uh, the only way of you being rational would be for you to start thinking, well, actually, you know, I don't remember committing this crime. I thought I was somewhere else. But all of the evidence in, is pointing to me being guilty. And that evidence really seems very strong. And, well, maybe, maybe I am guilty. Maybe there's something wrong with my memory. Maybe someone hypnotized me to believe that I hadn't done it. Um, may, may, you know, maybe I got a knock on the head and I've, I've, I'm, I'm suffering from some sort of psychological delusion. Maybe I, maybe I did do it. It's like when you, have you only played the game Cluedo, the board game Cluedo, where you're going around a, a country house piecing together clues and you have to gradually suggest that, that different characters on the board committed the crime. And you have to collect the, the room in the country house that the crime was done and the, the murder weapon uh, and so on. And one of the funny things about the game of Cluedo is that it can actually end up being you, the player, who was the murderer. But you can only win the game by correctly accusing the right person of doing the right crime in the right room with the right weapon. So you can end up saying, well, um, I, I accuse uh, me of doing the crime <laughs> with the candlestick in the, in the bathroom, whatever, uh, in the ballroom. Uh, so you've been going around for the whole game investigating this crime as if you're the detective trying to hunt down the person who's guilty, assuming, of course, that you're, you're not in, in that sense, and then you get to the end of the game and the only way to win is to admit that actually you're the guilty party. Um, couldn't it be like that in the court case example? Couldn't it be like that with Christianity? Plantinga says, seems to say, well, yes, it could be, and Craig seems to say, no, it, it couldn't be. Um, I think this is very important, actually, when you start looking at verses like this from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. Um, very famous verse. I got this from the uh, Weymouth New Testament translation. Paul says, And if Christ has not risen, it follows that what we preach is a delusion, and that your faith is also a delusion. So that famous passage where he's talking about how can you say there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised and we've testified that he has been raised, and if he hasn't been raised, then Christianity is not true. Uh, and we should all you know, go home and do something else, because the only reason for being a Christian is because it, it's true, guys. And he really has been raised, and so on. Um, but here Paul seems to say, if Christ hasn't been raised, then it follows that Christianity is not true, and you shouldn't believe it, and so on. Um, although he says, but, but he has been raised. Uh, how would... Um, uh, I think Craig deals in a very different way with that kind of verse than someone like Plantinga does, although they're taking the same kind of basic uh, epistemological uh, approach. It's a quote from one of the Q&A sessions on Craig's website when someone was questioning him about this very issue. Uh, and Craig says this, he says, if Jesus' bones were actually found and... W- that's the example they're using but you could just think in terms of if we were to discover what appeared to be a knockdown argument against Christianity or if we, we thought that the, a particular formulation of the, the logical problem of evil was a, an airtight deductive proof from things that we were really certain were true wouldn't that you know, give us uh, pause to think that well maybe, okay, maybe there isn't a God if Jesus' bones were actually found then the doctrine of his resurrection would be false and so Christianity would not be true. So far he seems to be in complete agreement with St. Paul. Uh, and there would be no witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
Uh, I think that this is the, the ambiguity here to keep an eye on, because what he really means here, surely, is there have been no genuine witness, no actual witness of the Holy Spirit, if Christianity is not true. There certainly appears to us to be a witness of the Holy Spirit. We have the experience. It appears to us that that witness is there. Uh, but if Christianity is not true, if Christ wasn't raised and so on, then that must be a, a delusion of some kind. So what he's really saying is Christianity will not be true and there would be no genuine witness of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, so if Jesus' bones were found, no one should be a Christian. Fortunately, there is a witness of the Holy Spirit and so it follows logically that Jesus' bones will never be found. Let me bring out the ambiguity in what he's saying by putting it into a more kind of argumentative form here. Um, and I've put this bracketed, the, the genuine, that he's really smuggling in there here. He's saying, if Jesus' bones were found, the doctrine of the resurrection would be false, no one should be a Christian. Second premise, but if the doctrine of the resurrection were false, then there'd be no genuine witness of the Holy Spirit. Third premise, there is a genuine witness of the Holy Spirit. Conclusion, so it follows that Jesus' bones won't be found. But when you factor in this ambiguity, what you still actually starts following is if we, we can make a distinction here. So if there is a genuine witness of the Holy Spirit, it certainly follows that Jesus' bones won't be found and that Christianity is true. And it's not false. But if we merely say there's an apparently genuine witness of the Holy Spirit, then what follows at the end of the argument is that um, if the apparently genuine witness of the Holy Spirit is genuine and not a delusion, then... Jesus' bones will not be found in Christianity is true. But those are two rather different claims at the end. There's a big difference between saying, well, if this apparent witness of the Holy Spirit really is true, then no objection brought against Christianity is going to work, and then Christianity is true, and saying, well, if this apparently genuine witness is true, then that would follow. But of course what you're then saying is, well, but if it's a delusion, then, then of course it's a delusion, it, and it doesn't follow. It's still saying maybe the burden of proof is on the other person to show you that it isn't genuine, that it is a delusion, but you are admitting that they might be able to do that as a kind of possibility, versus saying with Craig that you're not actually going to admit that they might be able to do that. Um, Craig's argument seems to depend upon the assumption that this witness of the Holy Spirit is genuine and not delusory. And I agree that it is genuine not not delusory. But that to use that in an argument against objections is it's a bit of a difficulty here. I think, for example, even granting that the witness, this experience, Christian experience and so on, is genuine, we might know this reality without knowing it in um, an absolutely certain manner. Um, so I, I think I'm absolutely certain that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And I think I'm more certain of that than I am that we're not all in the matrix. It seems more possible to me that, that we're not really all here in this room and it's all a grand illusion than that 2 and 2 doesn't equal 4. Both of those seem to me things that are rational to believe without, uh, you know, I don't have to 
if you're sceptical about that, I think the burden of proof's on you to support that scepticism. But there is a, a sort of difference between how certain I am. Um, in terms of the witness of the Holy Spirit, can we be can we be certain without being knocked down absolutely 100% certain, as it were? Um, Craig seems to want to be knocked down 100% certain, whereas Plantinga it doesn't quite go that, that far. Um, both are putting the burden of proof on the opposition, but it's really about how much, how high, you know, is that a burden that, that's even possible for anyone to, to carry? Um, seems to me, for Craig, uh, these beliefs that result from the witness of the Holy Spirit are, they're not on a par with beliefs like, I remember having breakfast, I know what I had for breakfast this morning, or we really are all here in this room. But they're more on a par with beliefs like, I exist, two and two equals four. Um, Doesn't seem that way to me, at least. Um, Perhaps perhaps Craig is just blessed with an especially strong faith. uh, And doesn't quite see this distinction because he doesn't experience it. I don't don't know. Maybe that's that's the case. All, All I can say is looking at this... Personally, my confidence in the truth of Christianity is, is much more like my confidence that I, I really do know what I had for breakfast this morning or I really do know that we're in this room than it is in, the, in my confidence that I know I exist or that two and two is four. Um, you'll have to kind of weigh that, that distinction and see where you kind of fall uh, on that for, for yourselves. So I'm saying, you know, I, I think this witness of the Holy Spirit is a very sp- strong way of looking at things. Um, it, I, I think it makes belief in God and Christ and so on rational, without arguments, at least for a lot of people, a lot of the time, that it might be something that's strong enough to overwhelm in and of itself a lot of objections that are brought against Christianity. But I'm, I'm per- not personally comfortable with going all the way with Craig and saying, um, uh, and and therefore it, it makes it so obvious that I can't even conceive of it being possible that someone might be able to mount an argument showing that Christianity is not true. Particularly since it kind of seems to me that St. Paul says that well, it, here's a possible circumstance in which that could be done. I don't think it is going to be done, but were you able to do this? It, for Craig it's almost like um, no amount of evidence would convince him that Christianity is actually uh, false. It's like he was saying uh, to, the, to the idea of there being a knockdown defeat of Christianity, it's not saying well, if Christianity was shown to be false, then we should prefer the truth to delusion. Of course we're committed to truth. We're committed to a God who's interested in truth and, and we can't and it would be hypocritical of us to continue being committed to that God whilst not being committed to following the truth. Um, and therefore, um, you know, that would be the sort of thing that St. Paul said, um, but we think there never will be such a defeater um, because it, it is true. It seems a little bit evasive, the way that he, he, he puts it. And it's almost like he grants that if Christianity were false, then it could be shown to be false, of course, but he also affirms that there are no possible circumstances in which a Christian should ever consider themselves rationally obliged to concede that Christianity is false. That seems, that kind of seems 
self-contradictory in a way. It's like I'm saying to the non-Christian, well, of course, if I'm wrong, you could prove that I'm wrong. But I can't, you know, I'm not even going to admit the possibility that you could prove that I'm wrong. Um, It doesn't quite sit. Uh, He says, should a conflict arise between the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fundamental truth of Christian faith and beliefs based on argument and evidence, then it's the former, the the witness of the Holy Spirit, which must take precedence over the latter, not vice versa. Mm, I'm going to go, I'm not so sure. Um, I'm going to skip Harold Netland. Uh, We mentioned Gary Habermas earlier. Um, some of the fascinating book Five Views on Apologetics where there are five apologists talking about different methodologies and so on uh, Habermas says uh, Craig seems willing to push the subject of the Holy Spirit's witness just a little further than I've done I prefer to speak of the witness primarily in terms of assurance and conviction and Plantinga talks about it can overwhelm defeaters but don't go quite so far as saying um, quite the way that Craig uh, kind of pushes it um, I think his theory of knowledge might be it might kind of hang together maybe it hangs together maybe it is consistent with scripture uh, it certainly talks about the witness of the Holy Spirit and so on but I don't think it's a way of looking at it that's required by scripture at least to, to the extent that Craig puts an emphasis on it um, its portrayal of an incorrigible faith is contentious even among Christian thinkers um, but I do think that his uh, his rejection of this kind of foundationalist epistemology is correct and his distinction between knowing that Christianity is true and showing that it's true to people who don't have the same experience uh, is a quite a useful summary of, of the kind of Alvin Plantinga view of theory of knowledge, what's called reformed epistemology um, Yes, that's, uh, as I say, that I think is, is some of the hardest material to get get your head around, um, and you can all, you can see from my issues as I'm up here that I'm kind of been grappling with with it myself. I, I go a long way with him, um, but I th- I think that the way he pushes it is just a little bit further than I'm comfortable with, and there's things that he ends up saying because of it seem a bit at least to the, to the outsider of the faith seem sort of disingenuous I think some of the debates in which Craig's had the most difficulty uh, for example in his debate with Christopher Hitchens the, I think the one thing that Christopher Hitchens was able to kind of really score uh, a good rational point on against Craig was reading out that, that, that quote that we had um, about if there's a conflict between my experience and what the evidence and reason shows me, I'm going to follow my experience. Uh, and um, Christopher Hitchens was able to portray Craig as saying, look, he's coming to you pretending that he's giving you rational arguments and reasons for believing in God and so on, but actually for him it's all about blind faith, faith irrespective of what the evidence and reasons actually show. And he says he's just going to go with his subjective experience regardless of what the evidence actually says and I don't think from my reading of of Craig that Hitchens was being terribly unfair to Craig to say that Um, and I think that's uh, a difficulty in terms of 
this, uh, the ethos of giving um, honest question, answers to honest questions and so on. Um, I think we have to say we're open to thinking seriously about challenges and critiques. It's not just an intellectual game to us. Um, I follow a Lord who commands me to worship him with his mind, who says I am the truth and so on. I'd be hypocritical if um, I, I came to sincerely believe that the truth and the reason and the evidence was, was showing that Christianity wasn't true. And yet I said, but, but since I've got this experience, um, that's going to trump everything. The only way in which that could be a rational position to take would be if this experience-based for belief was something that I was so confident about that it was on a par with my confidence that um, I exist, or two and two equals four, um, so that uh, it couldn't be trumped by any argument based upon any other basis of argumentation of beliefs. Um, But if it's not that strong a witness then it's at least possible that you could have an argument from something that had a stronger basis as the fact that we exist that ended with the conclusion that Christianity is false. Now, I don't think that is the case, uh, but I kind of admit that as a, a theoretical possibility, whereas Craig seems not to admit that as a theoretical possibility, and that at least, I think, creates some difficulties in terms of, of interaction with, with people who kind of get the impression that you know, we Christians want, want, want you, the non-Christian, to think about your views seriously and follow the evidence wherever it leads and to change your mind, even if it's personally uncomfortable and so on. But we're not really playing the same game by the same rules. That's kind of what I, I feel about it. Um, so there's a lot that I appreciate in what Craig has to say, but there are some aspects of it that I'm a bit wary of. Um, but I encourage you, of course, to... Um, come to your own conclusions on it.